0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Today's guest offers us a fascinating glimpse into a near future where careers last 100 years, and education lasts a lifetime. Our guest makes the case that learners of the future are going to repeatedly seek out educational opportunities throughout the course of their working lives, which will no longer have a beginning, middle, or an end. Her book focuses on the disruptive and burgeoning innovations that are laying the foundation for a new learning model that includes clear navigation, wraparound and funding supports, targeted education and clear connections to more transparent hiring processes. The book examines: how will a dramatically extended lifespan affect our careers? How will more time in the workforce shape our educational demands? Will a four year degree earned at the start of a 100 year career adequately prepare us for the challenges ahead? It's a great pleasure to welcome the author of Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, Michelle Weiss. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. It's good to be here.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us, Michelle. And just good news for our audience behind me here, you'll see a copy of Michelle's book. It's beautifully designed Michelle, just like your beautiful living room there. It's lovely design, you you brought flowers into it and nature and everything just like those beautiful Mother's Day flowers behind you. So it's a it's a great book, I highly recommend it just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance of winning that book. So Michelle, we got talking beforehand, you've worked with some of the best minds in innovation. And I was telling you, that your previous book, which you wrote with the great Clayton Christensen may rest in peace, you've incorporated elements of that into this, because that was the lens through which you see the world change and the ecosystem change. And you had the great privilege of working with Clayton Christensen, as some of our other guests on the show have had Scott D'Anthony, Mark Johnson, and indeed, Whitney Johnson, who you know, and his passing gave you a chance to reflect on his theories, and how they are playing out in the educational field. And I loved how you put this and I want to set you up here to please bring it home. His theories provide a constructive lens through which to analyze the unknown, and the nascent beautifully said, Michelle.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I I think it's, it's, um, something that took a little while to, to realize, um, that That he had completely changed my worldview, so that when I was confronting something new, I didn't perceive it as a threat or want to dismiss it. It's this very different approach to to thinking about the you know the innovations in front of you, where sometimes, depending on your stakeholder view in an ecosystem, so if you know the in the world that I live in, which is this kind of space between uh, education and work, when I was a professor, uh, there were certainly things like the innovations in online education where your immediate reaction is to kind of push it away or scorn it or dismiss it uh, or disparage it because it's nothing like what we do here in this particular college or university. and. What was so neat about the theories is you realize that this happens across every single industry, across every domain. This is our instinct as humans is to kind of quash that newness as, um, you know, that's nothing. It's nothing to pay attention to. Meanwhile, there are all these mechanics at play that make it possible for these different kinds of solutions to ultimately take up, um, you know, space in the market. And so- uh, you know, a, a lot of people say this, and it was it was fascinating. You know, around the the memorial and funeral of Clay, everyone was talking. It was almost becoming a little bit trite sounding that he changed our worldview. But as I reflected, uh, right, you know, when when all of this kind of happened, it's it's hard to deny. It it just it's just a truth that this these these theories help you kind of have a more positive orientation toward the future.
1: Beautiful. And I love how you articulate the disruptive innovation, I'm going to come back to that, because you do an absolutely beautiful way of simplifying it as well. So we'll come back to that. But I wanted to draw our attention towards some of the analysis that you did, because you analyzed the non consumers in the world of adu- adult education, even before the pandemic, you say, before the 2000 financial 2008 financial crisis, It left many people unemployed, often because they lacked the skills required for the new shifts in the workplace. You say our systems are brittle and do not fit everyone. Learners are forced to fit nonlinear realities into a rigidly linear system, and therein lies a massive problem.
0: When I was reading through a lot of the research on the future of work, I was just starting to realize that so many of the different analyses and um, thinking about about how we prepare for the future was so oriented oriented around the things, or the it, or the jobs, or the number of people who would be, who would lose their jobs to automation and computerization. And I just realized that at a certain point, um, all of those numbers and statistics just kind of uh, made us feel stuck and paralyzed because it's just overwhelming to think about millions upon millions of unemployment claims, you know, in the case of, of the pandemic. But when we actually shift our thinking, from the future of work to the future of workers, it becomes a whole lot more um, manageable to think about the kinds of barriers we need to solve for in order to move forward. And so the way that I leveraged this concept of the non-consumers or the people for whom the alternative is really nothing at all was to think about all of these displaced workers from the 2008 recession and through this uh, pandemic to realize, what were all the different kinds of obstacles and barriers that learners and workers who were not thriving in the labor market were were signaling and, and and discussing? And so we did a lot of deep dive kind of qualitative interviews with folks in this kind of bottom quartile of our of our of our population to really understand what what was kind of getting in the way of their pursuit of advancement. And in those one hour interviews with, Uh, a little over 100 different interviewees, we realized that there was just this coalescing around these five different areas. And it's it's really what are the building blocks of these five principles of what I call a long-life learning ecosystem. If we actually want to build toward the future and build a better functioning ecosystem so that we can all navigate job changes more seamlessly we need to solve for these kind of five barriers and happy to go into them. But that was sort of the the way that we entered into the research.
1: And I'll come back to those five. So I wanted to though, first recognize something that is in the title. So for a long time, by the way, when I had the book, I I kept saying lifelong learning. (laughs) And then I realized one day I picked it up. I was like, oh, it's long life learning. So we need to address that. And we've had Aubrey de Grey on the show before talking about ending aging and his work with sense. And this whole idea of removing the fact that we will die and making those final years, those final decades more pleasurable than they are where we're not these broken bodies. But that also raises what you're talking about here is that the careers that served us in the past, firstly, they won't exist because the world's changing so rapidly. But also, then we need to have this flexible mindset. So I'd love if you share this about the aging of the of the humanity, because we're living longer.
0: Yes, we are living longer than we had anticipated. Our structures are set up for uh, you know, a, shorter, a shorter lifespan and a shorter work life. And so we're seeing what is happening now where people are staying in the workforce at historically high rates well into their 60s and 70s. And, and there are these different kinds of theorists and futurists and experts on aging and longevity who are predicting different forms of delaying death right? Uh, Some in the form of immortality, some saying, you know, we could expect to, you know, there are people who are being born today who will probably live to be 150 years old. And whether or not you kind of buy into what number we're looking at for a longer life, for me, it was just a really helpful mental model to kind of break us, to sort of snap us out of our stupor. Because I feel like this concept of lifelong learning has been In the ether for decades. And we all agree, yes, we should be lifelong learners. You know, we should be constantly kind of retooling ourselves to remain relevant, but. When you actually look at the different kinds of investment in our infrastructure and the different kinds of systems that exist, you realize we're not doing anything to actually make more on and off ramps in and out of learning and work. And we, when we all think about just navigating a single job change, it feels so inordinately difficult. And what what's helpful is when you actually just look at, in the US, our Census Bureau data, we're seeing that early baby boomers are experiencing on average 12 job changes by the time they retire far more, I think, than we ever expected. Right. And so it's not actually that hard for us to extrapolate with, uh, you know, even just a slightly extended work life, we may be looking at 20 or 30 job changes to come and and where are we gonna go? Are, you know, we know we're gonna have to continuously access new skills and attain and acquire these new skills to remain relevant with all the different forces of technology around us. But where are we gonna go? Are we gonna go back to school? And so all of these questions were just so helpful in, in kind of spurring, thinking about how we, how we move toward action and just that kind of that, that framing of long life learning that trips us up and, you know, makes us want to think about lifelong learning. That is that concept to sort of say, if we, if we struggle with one job change, how in the world are we going to do this 20 or 30 times over?
1: Yeah, and I love the you mentioned about Clayton, giving you mental models, you helped me with some mental models here through reading your book and your work. And I love the one that is a shift from learn, earn rest, to an evolution of a cycle of learn and earn. And that's a nice mental model as well. So it's it, there's no safe harbor of rest anymore. But also, if we're living longer, the sense of purpose, will not be often fulfilled in a long, long period of pension. And then on top of that, you mentioned, well, actually, when people are living longer, the, the cycle of the pension funds being available is becoming less and less. There's a lot in there mm-hmm. that we need to think about. And you, you bring us through every part of the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I found it was helpful to think about ourselves as working learners, because uh, whether or not we have a job right now or we're a learner or a student right now, we're always going to kind of be cycling through both or juggling both at the same time. And I think what's helpful is um, there's also a little bit of uh, selfishness that's helpful in in this mental model where once you realize, okay, it's not about just the future of work, it's about the future of workers, but still it's not just about like those people over there who need to reskill because maybe they didn't get the degree that they needed earlier on. It's about all of us. Even if we have a degree, even if we have a fulfilling job, we can't actually expect some sort of permanence or stability there because we're all going to be affected by these different changes and have to shift and 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 change our mindset. And so in a way, there's a little bit of selfishness because it's the future of workers is the future of us. And it's, and it's a lot easier to kind of get to work on something that's going to affect us as individuals if we realize, oh my goodness, if if, you know, in in our case in the U.S., if 41 million Americans are bumping up against these same barriers around career navigation or wraparound support services or, you know, know, hiring processes that always demand a degree instead of looking at skills, these different kinds of barriers, if we're always, if they're bumping up against those, we're also going to bump up against those same barriers. And so... um, I think there's nothing like a little bit of um, empathy and selfishness to sort of realize, oh, that's, that's going to be me. I'm going to be stuck. So we better fix this now.
1: And another thing you talk about, so if, if we're in this stage of living longer, there's going to be more and more of a, a responsibility on children perhaps to care for their parents. So the kind of sandwich generation that's caring for the, the generation before them and the forthcoming generation, perhaps their children and their parents. And where I got empathy from the book was the understanding that so many people need to take the off-ramp from the workforce in order to care for those parents in their older age. And in doing so, the the ramp back on again, the on-ramp, is very difficult for them because they often get judged or ostracized in some way by the system.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think what was so illuminating about the pandemic was – all of a sudden front and center were all of our caregiving activities and responsibilities right and in the book i talk about some research that was led by the harvard business school where they they were able to you know survey a good amount of folks to realize oh 73% of folks actually all have a pretty substantial caregiving activity that maybe makes them a little less productive at work but we hide it we always kind of hide it because we don't want to be viewed as somehow less productive or, um, or less marketable in some way, but of course the pandemic just like brought it all forward for all of us.
1: In an accelerant, and, and I, I think that the the thing I'm very interested in is about how, when you know Warren Buffett said when we when the tide goes out we'll see who's swimming naked, but now that the tide comes back in, how do people react? Like so, there's a huge shift needed there, they've had a glimpse of the future. But I wanted to emphasise one of these great initiatives initiatives you talked about, because you emphasise the need not just for human skills, that many people are talking about, but for hybrid skills, the genius of and you called it, which I loved. And you mentioned a great initiative in Finland with AI with artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, I should say those are Jim Collins' fantastic words of sort of not uh, the tyranny of the or, but the genius of and. And I think in the um, higher ed workforce, this, this intersection, there's often been this kind of war between employers and institutions and faculty saying, you know, The training is is your responsibility. Both sides are kind of, you know, trying to, uh, you know, shove the responsibility on the other other stakeholder. Um, And in this case, you know, there's always been this kind of um, vigorous debate about what the purpose of college and post-secondary education is. Is it for that kind of well-rounded, you know, these liberal arts competencies, or is it about training for skills that are in demand in the labor market? And it's really that kind of false choice that really that, you know, we just really need to stop having this argument. It's this never-ending kind of circle, but indeed like employers are asking for both. It's not enough for us to just be generalists or humanists. We need to also have enough technological or technical skills to be dangerous. And it's this really important both and uh, where we need to not only kind of really hone our skills as humans in ways where we can out compete, or coordinate better with robots and machines. But we also have to have a really good grasp of the challenges of AI and when to intervene and how to think about um, these challenges. So we need to we need also some of that technical vertical expertise,
1: I want to come back to something you talked about, because you do this so eloquently in the book, which is the idea of non consumers, but also, that damn innovators dilemma. And because you worked with Clayton, so closely, you have a very deep understanding of both sustaining and disruptive innovation, and indeed non consumers, I'd love you to take our audience through this, because it builds the very foundation about the disruption of innov- of education itself.
0: Yeah, it's it's always been fascinating because when we talk about disruption in education, I think people tend to think of disruption as happening in a single moment. Um, but really, when you actually analyze different industries, you realize that in the automotive industry or the, in the steel uh, mills, uh, some of these changes and upending of these industries took multiple decades. It's not an instantaneous kind of now you're disrupted, and so when I, when Clay and I, uh, and the Institute would point to disruption in higher ed, we would actually start off as early as the early 1990s, looking at these different kinds of for-profit institutions like the University of Phoenix and DeVry. And it's so interesting when I mention these these universities, people have a real visceral reaction because they either think that is a low quality experience and that has nothing to do with, you know, real post-secondary education, or they'll mention all the ways in which the predatory recruiting practices really were just so harmful to the citizenry, right? We had these stories about um, these some of these universities fleecing uh, people who were homeless and getting them to sign on to these different platforms. The the thing we need to remember is when you actually look at it with this lens of non-consumers or people who really had no other access to education, what was fascinating about what Phoenix and DeVry and these other institutions were able to do is once online technologies became solid enough – they, they were a haven for people who were working and couldn't imagine going on campus or thinking about synchronous learning activities. They It was this flexible, convenient pathway that allowed them to do both, to both work and earn a living and also learn new skills. And so, you even it's, it's fascinating, even when um, these predatory practices were revealed, our government in terms of our senators even illuminated how this was poised to be a real solution for workers and learners, um, but they got kind of misled sort of gaming the, the federal financial aid system. But that really is sort of the the moment of beginning of this kind of potential disruption that may occur uh, in in the U.S., at least in in higher ed, and we've seen different waves of disruptive entrants come come on the scene. And I think our tendency, when we look at some of these mega online universities that are housing anywhere you know over a hundred thousand learners each, we tend to think, oh, that must that's maybe what we think of as disruption, but not quite, because even in those cases, we're still building on that sustaining trajectory of the the models that. Um, still kind of have to fit in under the regulations of how we give out financial aid. And so there are different kinds of barriers and processes that we have to squeeze these innovations into in order to to build. And so um, what I try to do in the book is just articulate that what is, what is being forgotten here or overlooked by most universities is that we are not looking at this huge untapped market of us, people who are in the workforce or who are above you know, the age of 25, who are not thinking of going back to college. All of us who are going to have to retool are going to be some of those non-consumers in the market. And we're not looking for a four-year degree experience, right? We're not looking to go back on campus. And sometimes we only need, you know, four competencies that we need to acquire in order to get that promotion or maintain your job, right? And so what is the what is the post-secondary and training system doing in order to serve all of us the, the theories of disruption are really helpful in kind of illuminating why there is such kind of stagnation and why there seems to be little reaction to all these changes in the current labor market.:
1: I'd love if you share it in the context of the motor industry like you do in the car. You tell a great story about Toyota, for example, being a disruptor, and this is unbeknownst to so many people because the main car manufacturers were tending towards the needs of their best customers. And they ignore the non consumers. And there's a quote I love that I talk about in my own book, Michelle, the Buckminster Fuller quote, that there is nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. So people dismiss the potential. And in doing so, they, uh, when they recognize there could be something in that, then they encounter the famous innovators dilemma, I'd love if you took us through this.
0: Yeah, so one really helpful and fast way of understanding what a non-consumer is when we talk about this this concept of people for whom the alternative is nothing at all, easy way to understand it is when we think back to the big three car manufacturers in the U.S. based in Detroit, who were kind of making money hand over fist and and, and really just kind of at the apex. Uh meanwhile Toyota kind of comes in with its first um, car in the. US called the Corona and it was this <laughs> tiny little car and it was um, it was kind of crummy in terms of its performance it it tended to break down a fair amount um, but for for people whose options were riding the bus or walking it was, A fantastic little vehicle, right? Because in their minds, they were not comparing it in terms of performance to a Cadillac. That wasn't within the realm of possibility. So they weren't those sort of consumers in, in, you know, uh, in the incumbent market. And so that's what we mean by sort of thinking about non-consumers. It's usually when you have any sort of new innovation or solution, it usually starts in the center of a market where people have the most amount of money and the most amount of skills. Um, Over time, the innovations start to kind of touch larger populations with folks who have fewer resources, because the innovations get cheaper and cheaper. But a disruptive entrant really kind of starts on those outer skirts of our populations to say, we're going to deal with people who are not actually the consumers in that center of the market and, and, and appeal to them. And what's interesting is the big three car manufacturers were more than happy to sort of seed that portion of the market to Toyota. They didn't want to be building Pintos. They didn't want to be building these low-end cars because when they built a new Cadillac, their profit margins were so much larger so they could build better and better cars for their best customers. What they failed to realize, and this is the, this is the hard part of the innovator's dilemma, is that they never expected that Toyota would realize over time the needs of the market better. To build better and improve their uh, technologies and improve their skills, to ultimately create the Lexus brand of vehicles and kind of completely upend the market. And that's usually what happens is that it's the innovator's dilemma is that it doesn't make any sort of financial sense for the the groups at the center to in, continue innovating for populations, you know, that are larger, who have fewer resources, it doesn't make sense from a financial perspective to pursue that low end of the market. Um, and that's where, if a disruptive entrant can really gain a toehold there, we have to watch out.
1: Brilliant, and I love what you say. So disruption always starts with good enough, and that's what trips people up. They don't think the product's good enough. You know, I even think of the original iPhone, it was clunky, didn't perform very well. It certainly wasn't a good phone, but Mm -hmm. it was built for a future that hadn't arrived yet. And I wanted to bring that to higher education like you do in the book, because you say it was only from the 1990s onward that a technological enabler, online technologies, became good enough for groups like University of Phoenix or DeVry, like you mentioned, to consider moving up market by launching the first fully online universities. Now, two things generally occur when you mention these bo- these schools. You mentioned them both negative. But I'd love if we explored how taking the concept of good enough from a Toyota perspective, let's apply it to higher education.
0: Yeah, so imagine we're professors at a prestigious university and we're looking at the innovations in the 90s that are happening at University of Phoenix. Our immediate impulse is to think Well, that's a terrible, low-quality form of education because what matters is face-to-face interaction. What matters is small class sizes so you can really personalize the education or meet the learners where they are. This is kind of our instinct is to think about all the ways in which we currently behave are the performance metric that matters to to learners. What was fascinating to see is that the first consumers of Phoenix and DeVry Education were more than happy to pay Way over state tuition costs, um, way over you know what what people were normally paying because they were they weren't looking at those same performance metrics of small class sizes in person. They were more than happy to kind of pursue something that gave them that flexibility and convenience, and they were ma- willing to actually pay a premium. So that's that's kind of an um, that's kind of an easy way of thinking about that challenge.
1: Do you talk about even the higher end universities, for example, they do what always established brands do, they start to compete on marketing or, pro- or product uh, lines. So you say in an effort to outpace fellow institutions in the game of college rankings, schools have improved classrooms, built more buildings, updated technology, sponsored faculty research, increased administrative overhead, and decked out residence halls and dining facilities. Meanwhile, Some schools have focused on the singular value proposition of teaching the new majority of learners again, those non-consumers. I thought you brought it together there beautifully.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's um it is it is fascinating to sort of see in in a lot of the projections that that different analysts are are putting out there. Um there is this growing uh potential cliff of enrollment that we can foresee already where we actually haven't been having enough babies uh, since the last recession uh, to to build a college going population that will fill the seats of the universities that that exist in the U.S. Uh, We just don't have enough people to fill those seats. And a lot of these schools are tuition dependent. And so you would wonder, why aren't these schools actually changing their behavior and trying to pivot and and sort of unlock more solutions for adult learners or working learners? And we're not seeing that 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 happen. And part of that is just that there's this incredible amount of inertia that exists because the model that they have today, it took so long to iterate and kind of start to Actually, figure out a revenue model that made sense, and we have so many different kinds of value propositions that we um, offer in a traditional university around teaching, research, and social growth. And so it's it's just hard for us to respond nimbly, and that's that's what that's what it um, I'm getting at there. Um, I did. It was interesting as I was. Um, I, I wanted to share with you just like a new. Uh, a new sort of example of, of this kind of tendency for us, you know, if we're at uh, the center of the market to dismiss something Um, in, in in the neighborhood that I live in uh, one of the houses that I walk by frequently has just like a little, a little, um, sort of, uh, almost like a little house um, that they've kind of uh, built onto a little post out on their lawn. And in it, there are like 10 different books in there that people put in there and they take a book they want to read. And so it's this kind of, if you take one, the expectation is you put one back in there. And it's this lovely little thing where, where you actually, you know, get to just sort of quickly get a free book and then give one away that maybe you're not reading anymore. And I was talking, yeah, it was really sweet. And I was talking to a librarian about this. And she said, it's hilarious because her colleagues who are also librarians hate those things. Because they, <laughs> <laughs> because they think it's not a library. It's not curated, right? It's that mental model of this isn't the right thing. Meanwhile, it's it's helping us as these non-consumers be delighted by this little innovation, right. And it's that same kind of thing of, that's not the right way to do things. That's kind of our, you know, the way that we currently do things is the right way to do things. And that's the mental model that we have to kind of break.
1: Yeah, and you see it so many times where people who are actually brilliant, they're geniuses, but it's the curse of expertise, and they become blind and defensive. I'm sure you saw that in your academic career. But I I wanted to bring (laughs) it to, uh, to the story of Paul LeBlanc who introduced some basic rules of decentralization informed by clay's research, including, I loved these rules, room to play by different rules, finding underserved markets clarity about the job we are doing. And he described these moves as a way to negotiate some breathing room among the different entities, as well as their governance structures. And that separation is critical in allowing the new thing to prove itself and to figure out the new business model. Again, giving it the time to get to a point of either proving or not that there's a market for it. And so many times it's quashed in its infancy in its embryonic stages.
0: Or the 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 sort of newer solution wants to co opt it and says, No, I can take care of that. I can do it. I can do that new model that you want to that you want to test out and I can pilot it. and, and it's fascinating with, um, so I, I used to work uh, with Paul at Southern New Hampshire University, and it was so amazing to see what they were able to build out of their you know 2,000-person campus-based experience to build this kind of online machine. But it's fascinating because that, that online credit hour-based machine was so incredibly successful that when they actually tried to spin out a few more Uh, different business units it was inordinately difficult for those new units to get that breathing room it's the same exact dilemma that happened all over again the cycle happened. wow yeah it's it was fascinating to see and i remember um i happened to see clay at the at a board meeting and i pulled him aside and i said clay The innovator's dilemma is real. (laughs) I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it in action right now because it's so hard to relinquish that new activity and give it that breathing room when this sustaining trajectory of even this kind of newer innovation, there is that new sustaining trajectory of that online education opportunity. It's so powerful and alluring because it's making money, right? Right. How how do we then start losing money on this other thing? And even though we're experimenting with something new, how do we give it the space to build out its own business model? So hard to do.
1: Wow. And so so many of our listeners are those people who work in the space that's supposed to have breathing room, (laughs) but there's nowhere to breathe. They're gasping for air. What have you seen then? So let's make it a more generic, uh, maybe an example or, or even a thought process of mm-hmm. what works. So I, I what you said there about the, the cycle keeps continue, I thought about the the idea of the Hydra that you chop off its head and two more appear. So the, the mm-hmm. cycle of getting to the top of your S curve continues to happen and that decline and that defensiveness. But what have you seen that actually works? Maybe in education, maybe elsewhere?
0: Yeah, I mean, part of it is time. Uh, we need to give these new innovations time to burgeon and bloom it's not going to happen instantaneously and sometimes they're going to look like a failure initially um, and so even three years is maybe not enough I think we want to think of these sort of disruptive innovations or these new solutions as instantaneous things that are immediately going to help us but sometimes these things are going to need close to seven years to sort of figure themselves out and we have to be patient and that is really you know you Hear a lot of people talk about patient capital. It's still, you know, there's not a lot of kind of heft to that word sometimes because people will use it, but then they are asking for why are we, why are we not figuring out this challenge or why are we not figuring out the volume play here? Um, so I think one important piece is just in, it's not even the physical space; it is time, and it is really that ability to have freedom in creating a wholly new business model that looks nothing like what the existing b- business is doing. Um, so I think that is that is key and having separate team structures to to kind of innovate. It's interesting because I'm um, in the end of June. I'm going to be joining a, a a university system that is mostly online, and Congrats. I'm going to be. Thank you. I'm going to be building out new programs for this national university system, and that same question is coming up. We know we need to kind of augment our existing programs, but we also know we need to build new programs that are truly aligned to workforce needs. Who owns it, right? Who's doing it, and how are we going to how are we going to make sure that the incentives are aligned so that people aren't kind of um, Hurting one another inadvertently because they're sort of thinking of this as some sort of territorial or zero-sum uh, game, and so I'm so deeply cognizant of these challenges because I've seen it happen in you know in the work that I've done, and, and you know even as we talk about autonomous growth units or these skunk works or federated affiliates, it all sounds great in theory. It's really difficult to kind of put into action.
1: Yeah, because we're, we're human after all. And we have biases and cognitive, you know, issues and blockers, etc. But I, I loved what you said here, you said it's not just that the education infrastructure has failed to keep pace with tax transformation of the economy, as corporate leaders are prone to suggest. So there's a blame game going on here. There's also a onus on companies just as much as it is on the higher education system to respond more rapidly and urgently to the changing nature of work. You mentioned time being an enemy there for a, an embryonic new idea or an S curve jump. But it's also the same within organizations. They don't allocate time for people to learn and that needs to happen nope. on a much more regular basis.
0: 100%. Yeah, it is this challenge of time poverty. I think we all <laughs> felt it acutely during the pandemic when suddenly we had no no way to outsource any of uh, the things that take up our time, right? It was all on us. And suddenly we realized we have no time to do everything, right? It's that It is really, truly one of our most precious resources. And within the realm of employers and businesses and corporations, you know we often hear this mantra that our you know our largest asset is our human capital and yet we do so little to invest in our own people and there's amazing uh, research that i share from peter capelli where he's shown how over the last 4 decades there's just been this sharp kind of dwindling of the amount of time we invest in new workers and try to train them we're always trying to cherry pick and recruit new people who have exactly the experience that we want to sort of slot them into the the new unfilled role. And we just not we just can't sustain that activity f- you know from here on out. It's not it's not going to work. We have to look at the people around us and understand how we start kind of giving them the skills and tools that they're going to need for the emerging jobs that we're seeing on the horizon. And that's really going to involve time. We we can't just expect these busy humans, all of us, to layer this on top of everything else going on in our lives. We have so many other responsibilities and things that that sort of tear at us that, that make it hard for us to pursue more education. So the f- most forward-thinking companies are gonna be the ones that are thinking about internal mobility pathways, making it clear to their existing workforce, how they move up, how they skill up, and also offer the time, whether it's one hour a day or one hour a week for people to actually build those new skills. It has to be this kind of embedded hands-on in the flow of work activity. It can't be something we just expect them tacitly to accomplish all on their own outside of our work time.
1: And the mental model you gave me there was the idea that the on off ramp actually needs to exist within your five day week as well. So you have to have the opportunity within the organisation. So there's a highway happening within the organisation itself. Mm -hmm. But I, you mentioned there about people, you know, not, we can't expect people to do that. Now, we all know those people who are constant learners. We we know these people, they, they were lifelong learners. Now they're going to be long life learners. (laughs) But they're, they, t- they put an onus on themselves, they take responsibility. But one of the things I really got from your book was the empathy for those people who just don't have that bandwidth, they don't have, you know, I'm very privileged to be able to do that and educate myself. And I, it really gave me that perspective to see things from the other side. But um, I wanted to talk about the onus on ourselves, because I I love the concept in life of when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at you. So (laughs) playing the blame game, you got to go, but what did I do to contribute to that? And bringing it back to what we talked about the innovators dilemma. If I'm successful in my career, I can be susceptible myself, because I can't see why I need to train up and skill up for something that doesn't exist yet. You mentioned, for example, AI, many or cybersecurity, all these burgeoning, they're, they're not coming, they're here. But they just as William Gibson said, not equally dispersed yet. But you talk here about when the moment arises, we're stricken by fear, and we don't know where to turn. And you give an example of Steve, and you say, he must find the right learning experience that aligns with his chosen career path, but also determine how his transferable skills can be redeployed in novel ways. And then he needs a way to package his past experience and skills into a format and language that prospective employers can trust and understand because that is very difficult for somebody. They're not storytellers. They can't frame their story well because they need to have a side of what are employers asking for or looking for. You talked about the transparent hiring processes. What does the market need and what am I capable of doing? There's a kind of triumphant of, of perspectives there.
0: hmm Yeah, it is, um, So the challenge for all of us as we kind of negotiate this longer work life is even for people who aren't autodidacts, who aren't sort of these lifelong learners at heart, the thing is, all of us are acquiring new skills, we just don't have the language and we don't have ways of surfacing those skills and help make them understandable to a future employer. So uh, I steal this um, phrase from Peter Smith uh, that's called hidden credentials. We each have hidden credentials, we just don't have ways of formalizing that and making it understandable and translating. And so this is where I think there's actually some really interesting innovations occurring in these different kinds of. AI-powered platforms where now these different sorts of machine learning are, are recognizing that as we type in something like barista, we can actually realize that, oh, my goodness, by doing that work, we actually we actually were honing these different competencies in customer service or budgeting or, you know, um, whatever the change management, whatever the, the skill may be. And as we get better at just sort of understanding, oh, yes, that is me, I, I do know how to do those skills, we actually start to open ourselves to new activities that we never imagined possible. And so in the case of Steve, what's interesting is, this is a real interviewee we, ch- we chatted with who was 51, knew he needed to work for another 15 years, and his immediate thought was, well... I think I should just maybe become a teacher because I like kids. But that's how we generally kind of think as humans where we don't have a whole lot of imagination in terms of envisioning what is possible because we don't know what truly are our transferable skills. We don't know which skills actually port over from this domain over to a seemingly unrelated new opportunity in systems network analyses or you know, being able to be a human resources manager Um, And these AI powered platforms are giving us some of those, um, giving us that visibility to say, oh, we're actually 85% of the way there. And we just need to acquire these 10 skills. Suddenly, it becomes a whole lot more doable. And so that's one of the exciting ways in which AI is not hurting us, but potentially helping us.
1: I love that. And uh, you mentioned earlier on the five guiding principles. I'd love us to share this perhaps as a kind of a final message for audience, because the book is like a mountain. So you kind of go up the mountain of all the obstacles that we need to overcome in the year. And well, well, here's, from my experience, and those lenses I've picked up over the years, that I can see it unfolding and towards a more spaceship Earth, I I like to talk about this idea that we're all crew, there's no passengers that we have to enable our brothers and sisters across the planet. Because if they're failing, we're failing, We're, we're the same people. And it's not about the gods and the useless as Yuval Noah Harari would say it's about everybody having a part to play and the wealth being dispersed across those people to enable them. And it's, it's I love the concept of it's not teaching a man or woman to fish. It's not fishing for them. It's teaching them to fish because there's real purpose in that as well, which tees you up beautifully for the five guiding principles that your formula for success.
0: Yeah, so one of the reasons why the cover of the book has that kind of nature imagery on it is because um, I talk a lot about ecosystems in, in this book. And the reason why is because what we have done thus far is function uh, as systems. There's a lot of very siloed systems that are not integrated, not easily understandable or navigable. So we generally kind of talk about K through 12 education over here, college, workforce training over here, employers. Um, we have policymakers over there doing something different. Everyone is kind of looking at the birdcage. This is Marilyn Fry's metaphor. We're looking at the birdcage by looking at a single bar. Instead of sort of stepping back and realizing the great interdependence of what what is going on here and i think one of the big misunderstandings of the theories of disruption is that you have to sort of blow things up and start from scratch or build something new and that is absolutely not what clay was talking about and one of the ways in which we can kind of approach this differently is think about these these different kinds of interdependencies as an ecosystem and how, how we actually have to knit together a lot of these different solutions that already exist along with new solutions that are in service of the job seeker or the non-consumers. So the idea is that from all of that research that we did, the qualitative interviews with folks, we realized that people are seeking better career navigation, or guidance. They are looking for human touch points through wraparound support services. They are looking for more precise educational opportunities. They're not always looking for a bundled two or four year degree. They are looking for integrated earning and learning experiences, so learning on the job in that kind of embedded, hands-on, experiential way. And they're looking for fairer and more transparent hiring practices. And the important thing here is like for each of those five principles, those need to be in existence in order for this to become easier for all of us. So if we think about navigating a job change, we need solutions knitted to great knitted together across all five of those principles. We need them all to exist in order for us to make a seamless change in the job market. And I think what we've tended to do up until now is focus on a single solution over here, Or maybe we have solutions that exist in all five buckets, but for a lay job seeker, or if you're just talking to someone on the side of the street, they have no idea that some of these solutions exist. So how do we bring all of this together in a way that is just so much more comprehensible and navigable to any person? Um, And that is this real concept of this new learning ecosystem that we need to be aspiring toward. It's not just one or a couple of these pieces, it's all five. Five of these principles that need to come together, but completely oriented in service of the job seeker, not in terms of a funder or a philanthropist or a policymaker. It has to be so that anytime we talk to someone and say, how are you going to navigate your next job change? They know who to turn to, where to call, which learning providers are really providing those legitimate experiences that employers will validate and hire me based on. So those are those are what we mean by the, the five guiding principles of a better learning ecosystem for the future.
1: One last question for you, which is, if you think about higher education needs to be reformulated, recalibrated, what about getting in at an earlier level? So the primary school, the primary education of the future, do you have some thoughts on that one?
0: I do. So I had the privilege of working for Imaginable Futures, which is um, uh, Piero Midiar, who's the founder of eBay, it's his venture philanthropy group in education, and they very much have a two pronged approach to um, intergenerational mobility. It's not just about the working learner or the adult. It's about early childhood interventions, because we know that some of the most critical interventions that can possibly occur are even before the age of three. Right. And so a lot of these things that we're we're remediating for now as adults are things that really we need to sort of solve for much, much earlier on, even in the first 20 days of life. Right. There's more data coming out how important it is to sort of build that stability and reduce trauma in in our children's lives. So it is absolutely critical that that those early interventions are happening. Um, and it's, I've, I've found myself often in this kind of existential crisis where I focus so much on more mature learners. Meanwhile, I know that some of the primary interventions that are occurring are so much earlier on that we need to solve for. And that's why we need so many more solutions and organizations and innovators working in this space to make sure we're, we're solving for all the different levers when it comes to intergenerational mobility.
1: And it makes it more, there's more spokes on the birdcage than when you start talking about that, don't you? Yeah, one of the things I found fascinating, and this is from a personal perspective as well, I work as an executive coach for several executives. And firstly, I had empathy, I do some pro bono work for those people who can't afford it. But I felt the the Sherpa responsibility to guide somebody was very strong from what your findings were with the interviewees. So yes, there's lots of stuff out there. You can even watch YouTube videos. You can learn from so many wide variety of technologies and platforms. But some people really struggle with that because it's almost like the paradox of choice. They need somebody to speak to, they need somebody to bounce ideas off with. Of. I found that really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think especially as adult learners and workers, we've been burned in the past by pursuing something that didn't actually yield the result we were hoping for. And so as a result, we do we do need those Sherpas, those guides on the side, those trusted advisors, those coaches. Um, we need someone to turn to. It's not always going to be a tech-enabled chatbot, although some folks really sometimes prefer in certain venues and cases not to talk to someone yet other times they want hands on help me I am in a crisis what do I do where do I turn Um, those human touch points are real and critical in terms of our gaining confidence as learners again
1: I thought that was fascinating Michelle from even say take a middle schooler that when they're going through career choice they're totally lost and maybe the career you know talk about the the time is the enemy. Again, the career teacher or the career coach or the the counsellor, it, it doesn't have time to put much time. It's like almost like going to the doctor and you're rushed out the door. And you don't have that kind of Sherpa. And then I, I thought that's interesting from a school perspective to have that type of person who has sight of you every maybe month or something like that to, to guide you and you know, again, bounce those ideas off.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, and part of it is we don't have a lot of opportunities for our young learners to try out some of these different kinds of work, right? We're asking them to aspire towards something they have no experience in, right? And so how do we make sure we're building in different kinds of apprenticeships or internships or work-based learning opportunities so that they realize, oh, I love solving problems, you know, for these kinds of companies or people who are working in this field, we, we can't just sort of aspire towards something in the abstract or have passion for something in the abstract. We really need ways to kind of have little gigs here and there where we can try out and build those skills and realize, ooh, that's not a fit for me, or I really need to start, you know, learning some skills so I can kind of move in this particular direction.
1: Michelle, before we finish, I'd love your final thoughts, on for our audience? What what would you say to a general audience now? But before you do that, where can people find out more about you? You do a lot of keynote speaking, for example, where can they find you?
0: If people want more information, I have a website, it's very easy. It's called rise and uh, And I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter if, if uh, with the handle at rwmichelle with two L's.
1: Beautiful, Michelle. And how would you like to close today's show?
0: What I hope, folks take away here is that, yes, the future seems deeply uncertain and volatile. But at the same time, there are so many reasons for hope. And in the book, the reason why I mentioned so many of these different kinds of seeds of innovation is to show that there are so many incredible innovators and entrepreneurs and organizations working to try to help all of us and try to create more sort of engines of mobility for all of us. And it's just that The future is going to require a different way of behaving where we orchestrate differently and integrate our efforts instead of sort of plowing ahead in parallel or in silos. And so while it's going to be challenging, uh, I just think that there is real hope in uh, like, I just I feel an abiding hope for this future. Um, And what it requires, though, is that we just begin to build
1: And you certainly do that in the book, and you do it magnificently author Of long life learning, preparing for jobs that don't even exist yet. Michelle Weiss, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much.